Hey everyone, you're listening to the 107 Podcast, where we get together every fortnight, and sometimes more often, to talk about technology, business, and the humans in it. I'm your host, Ivan Stegic. My guest today is Gavin King. If you're a fan of jungle and drum and bass, you're more likely to know Gavin by his stage name, Aphrodite. He is a British DJ and producer and has been described as the king of Jump Up Jungle, which is a sparse, high-energy offshoot of drum and bass. He's one of the world's most traveled and renowned, and my favorite, jungle drum and bass DJ, and I'm honored to have him on the show today. Joining us from the UK is Gavin King. Hello. Hello. Thank you for inviting me on. I don't do many podcasts, so it's, uh, it's great to do one. Thank you. Well... It's lovely to have you on. It's it's my pleasure. I'm glad you were able to make it today. So you're a UK DJ. Where are you joining us from the UK today? Um, I live in London, and I've lived in London since uh, since I was very small. How's the lockdown treating you? I understand that the the lockdown um, the order was quite severe in the last month. Have you been out much? No, um, lockdown in the UK. We are we are like the USA. We are absolutely rubbish at following instructions, guidelines, and we yeah. have loads of people who don't believe in it. So the problem is that we have shed loads of cases and people are dying like flies. My um, my best friend, my best friend's um, wife uh, died two weeks ago of the disease. So oh it's, it's, it's very sad indeed leaving two children i'm so sorry to hear that yeah it's 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 an absolute killer but because it's so rare (laughs) you know there's this kind of like there's a sense that it doesn't it's not really out there but when it does come along it, it it's terrible yeah it really messes up the whole situation and the the whole lifestyle that we have and yeah just so smart to be staying at home and and dealing with it that way. Now, you do you consider yourself a native to central London? I, I know that you were born in Wales on the West Coast. I, like, I'd love to hear about your early life and um, how you made it to London. Oh, my God. <laughs> I lived in Wales for two years. So, um, basically, I was only there. I was only born there because my father was working at the Aberystwyth University. Um so he comes from London, so I moved back to London when I was about two or three, and so I consider myself a Londoner and English. And did you go to school in London? And yes. The whole and um, the whole experience through high school was all local in central London. Yeah, that was all um, all in South East London, and then I went to university in the Midlands in, in Warwick. Warwick University. You became a computer science student in the eighties, um, and you and the, the things I've read say that you basically used your technical skills to teach yourself how to DJ. I, I'm curious to know what you thought you'd be doing with a computer science degree before you actually realized you could be making money off of producing music. I am a product of my parents. Um, my mother was a piano teacher. 
So I played piano and violin from the age of four or five. And my father was a professor of computer science. So he taught me to program when I was about six or seven. Uh, and, I, and I used one of those uh, crazy handheld Sinclair. It was, it was Sinclair. This is, this is going back a long, long time. So as soon as there were small programmable devices, we had them in the house. And, and, and uh, I was a bit of a tear away at school. So I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't student at all. So I tended to get through on natural ability. And the reason why I got to university was because um, I was a natural programmer, a natural computer programmer, because I've been doing it for such a long, such a long time. And yeah, my grades were the worst out of everyone in, in my year. But <laughs> when it came to uh, programming a flight simulator, I, I did really, really well. <laughs> so your evolution to using Amiga 500s for mixing music and for producing music was from a Sinclair. That seems like a natural evolution. Um, no, uh, but I I got into DJing in 1988 and made the club Aphrodite happen. Um, which is where I got my name from. Where was the club? It was uh, it was in the Midlands while while I was at university. We just used to hire it out and to put on nights, and the nights were called Aphrodite. So um, because 1988 was the summer of love, everyone was crazy on drugs in in the UK, and uh, Goddess of Love, Summer of Love, which is where the name kind of hooked from. So we did oh. that. And they became really well, and it, it turned out that I had a forte for DJing, and so I became like the head DJ. I was to do six-hour sets for the university in front of a thousand people, and people used to come and watch me mix in the end. And it was during that era that I went into a, a friend of mine's room who to, about some computer science stuff to do with a course. And he was in there playing an Amiga and some music was coming out of it. I was like, what is that? <laughs> so uh, I, I bought one. My dad refused to buy me one and I had to wait months to save up. So I eventually bought one. And um, because I didn't have much money, I couldn't afford that many records. But I had the Amiga. So to bump up my mix CDs, I would make things from the Amiga to put into my mixtapes. The story I read in Amiga format that you were on the cover of, I guess, in 92? Good couple of years later. So you had your Amiga and you had two of them. Yeah, because you only have um, two channels and you can play four channels at once and it gets split. So two go into the left, two go into the right. So if you're making your records, you can only ever play four things at once and it's all in mono. If you have two of them playing at the same time, then you can play eight things, and then you can have a couple of those channels in stereo um, put through a mixing desk, and then you can make the appearance of the bass and drums being in mono and some of the sounds um, being more wide to make it sound good. Did you write any software to control the channels and to control the music that was coming out of both of them? Um, No, but I... I became known as being quite forensic when it came to production. Um, I, I'm the person that would go deep, deep, deep into how waveforms were drawn and and all the all the rest of it because of my technical skills. 
when you were producing the the first song that you made out of an Amiga, did you did you even end up publishing that, or did that um, end up somewhere in the scrap heap? <laughs> I played it in a shop um, that was round the corner from me. I was working as an insurance salesman. There was a, a recession at the time, so computer science jobs were hard, hard to come by. Though, interestingly mm. enough, I was offered a job at a small company then called Microsoft, which I said no to. <laughs> 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 well, we wouldn't have had Aphrodite in the in the um, in the world the way that we do now had you said yes. True, but I might have a bigger house. <laughs> <laughs> Did you? Who were the first people that you collaborated with? Uh, well, this is it. I played the. I had. I made a couple of tracks. This is around nineteen ninety, and music was moving pretty fast in its style. So breakbeat came in, and. Uh, the, the UK was going breakbeat crazy. We called it hardcore, and it became um, it became breakbeat. It hadn't really kicked off abroad yet. It was still very underground, um, but it was the basis of drummer bass and jungle, um, and it speeded up to that in about 1993, 94. But I made a couple of tunes, played them in a shop, and in the shop there was. Um, Mickey Finn, DJ Mickey Finn, he was in the shop and he was an established DJ at the time. So he said, look, what is that? I love that tune. So he came around my house. I lived with my mum at the time and we finished the track. Um, and then the track went massive. It became a huge anthem and then went into the national charts and got into the national charts at number 21 or I think 23. Is that the one, um, is that Urban... Take a, no, uh, which one is that? Urban Shakedown, uh, Sun Justice Shakedown. Yeah. And after the um, work with Mickey Finn, how how did that evolve? Um, well, we worked together on quite a number of projects, and the projects that we worked together on always took a long time. Um, mm. However, that was a good thing because... When two minds put you, when two two minds are better than one when 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 making music, especially if the minds come together. So if I like something uh, and he likes it, and we both like it, then it'll work. If either one of us like it and the other one doesn't, then you have to keep kind of going back to the drawing word, drawing board, and working on whatever it is you're working on bass lines or, or or sounds or whatever you you've been referred to as one of the founding fathers of jump up jungle and to me i know what jungle is i know what the niche of jump up is um it's what originally got me hooked on jungle and drum and bass it's been a lifelong obsession for me for those of us for those of uh our listeners who who don't know what it is could you could you give us a description of what it is and maybe play a sample, um, something that's quintessentially jump up? Um, okay, so in about 1996, uh, there, were, there was a lot of accelerated breakbeats going on. And for me, it was all a bit complex and you dance to the bass line. And then I preferred this sound of stricter rhythms uh, so the dum I love that because that was more danceable, 
And when I add rolling bass lines and kind of wobbly sounds to that, that became known as Jump Up. I don't know why it became Jump Up. Um, I don't even know who coined the phrase, but it, if it makes you jump up and dance, then it's a good thing. It Exactly. It's happy and uplifting. That's what I always thought. It made you jump up. <laughs> A good track to start off and show that would be King of the Beats. You say a one for the trouble, two for the time. Oh, come on, y'all. Come on, y'all. Come on, y'all. Come on, come on. So I'm getting carried away listening to that now. <laughs> okay. Um, actually, that leads into a good question for me. How do you listen to your own music? I mean, you make it all the time. How how does how does the music you make make you feel? Um, I if I can make music that makes me dance, um, then the likelihood is it's going to make others dance around too. Uh, so if, if my mission is I want to make something that I'm really happy with and I want to DJ and I want to play, um, and. If I, you know, if 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 when I'm making it, I come to a moment where I'm dancing around the studio like a NASA, then then that's a pretty good sign. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's your um, that's your surefire way of knowing it. Others will like it, and you know what? I think I agree with you. <laughs> one one of your signature sounds, um, in my opinion, is the way you use a hi hat and what you referred to earlier as, as those rolling beats. Uh, my wife and I met as a result of Jungle. I I was in the United States. She was working in a record store. I walked into the store and asked for Jungle because that's what I knew in South Africa, and I wanted to see what Minneapolis had. And no one in the whole record store knew anything about Jungle except this one girl, Susie. And... We 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 got to talking, and and to this day we're still listening to it. And one of the things we've always agreed on is we think you're the master of building a track up, and then dropping it. And I I wonder if you could play something that you think is quintessentially that, and and then let's talk about why you do that. Okay. Um, well, I guess uh, there are so many tracks of mine that do that can play Star from the Dark Side, but this is the original version, um, as opposed to the one that was on my first album, which was Dark Side 99. So this is the original from 96, just before I turned the jump up corner. Craziest, 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 craziest
See, it's got the baseline power, but it, it's got um, break beats playing together as opposed to a strict kick and snare. Yeah, you've got me moving around in my chair now when you play that <laughs> stuff. <laughs> uh, what I don't understand is how remixes come together, why they are done, and how you can have you know six remixes of the same song. So you refer to that as Style from the Dark Side pre the 99 that came out of your record. And are you mixing all of them and remixing all of them? How do you get other people involved? Why does that happen? Um, well, basically, you get bored of playing it, but you still like it. So in order to infuse more energy into wanting to play it again, you have to kind of update it with things, with sounds or, or styles that have moved on. Now, at that time, um, music moved pretty fast, um, much faster than it does today. Um, so, you know, people were very quick to say, oh, that's, that's old school. Or that, so you would kind of add more sounds or add, uh, it would be slightly different style and be more pumped up. And so you could enjoy it again. Um, the thing is, for me personally, I have tended to go back to the original of that track as opposed to playing Dark Side 99. I couldn't tell you why. Maybe I'll I'll go back to Dark Side ninety nine. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> well, I I don't think I've heard the original. I think although I think I've only listened to the ninety nine one over and over again. Um, where is the original available? Is it available online? Uh yeah. Um, I've released it. It's on it's on Spotify. You can buy it from my website. Um, it's it's out there in the world. Okay, good. Now I, I will look. I will make sure I look it up and, and listen to it with 99 as well. Yeah, the original is called Star from the Dark Side as opposed to Dark Side 99. Got it. So that was in the late 90s. Uh, what are you working on right now? What What is the track du jour? What are you working on? Uh, what I'm releasing... In about two weeks is a remix of A-Zone Calling All The People. Now, A-Zone Calling All The People was the tune that started my jungle story in 1994. Um, mm. I didn't particularly like all the tracks that were out there, and I made it more as a piss take. I was skint, but when I did it, everyone loved it, and it became one of... The, the tunes of London and the, the, one of the tunes of Notting Hill Carnival that year, and um, it became an anthem. Um, it's called Azome because because I was skint and I couldn't um, press it up myself. I had to come up with a name that they could sign to that particular record label, which was White House Records. So I um, I came up with Azome, and it's the only track, the only the only two tracks by the name of Azome, but now it's under me now. Um, so I've done remixes of that and what I've done is I've updated it because it was very slow at about 168 BPM, um, or actually 159 BPM, which is very slow for a jungle tune, um, <laughs> or, or a drum and bass tune. So, um, I've done 170 BPM version 175. Wow. So, uh, this this is released in a couple of weeks and I'll play you the updated 170 mix. 
Oh, I could keep listening to this forever. <laughs> what? It, it, it's, it sounds 2020. It sounds updated. It sounds addictive. It Like, I could listen to that the whole day. What What is it, do you think, about jungle and drum and bass that makes so many people lifelong addicts to it? Uh, I don't know, because, I mean, essentially, that is the original track, Speed It Up. And all I've done is mixed down the sounds again and made them a bit cleaner, made them a bit tighter um, and pumped them up and made them more stereo. So essentially it's the same thing, but it just it's just got a bit of nicer production to it. Um, and I don't know, I mean, people are still making Jungle now. I mean, I find it amazing that um, the tracks that I made 25, 30 years ago are still relevant. I find that amazing too. And back then you were taking on the Giants with two Amigas and <laughs> and and no recording studio. Did you ever think you'd be doing something like that? Like being able to produce music back then and then still doing it now with the tools have changed so much and everyone can do this? Well, it gave me an ethos that you don't need the latest and greatest plugins computers you don't you don't need all these kind of the best of the best stuff in order to to make good music that sounds good essentially it's a waveform right so however mm -hmm. you make that waveform shouldn't really matter um so you can make a waveform on any kind of computer you want or so if it sounds good uh it doesn't really matter how it's made that's a that's a great lifelong lesson to have learned, and um, it's completely anti what Google and Apple and all the large companies want us to do. Buy the latest stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, it's funny enough. I I am anti update. Um, <laughs> when it comes to <laughs> when it comes to updating, I am I do it begrudgingly every single time. <laughs> what What are you using now to? to make music um at the moment i'm using a laptop which is a uh actually it's quite a nice one it's um what's it called a macbook pro from 2018 it's probably the fastest macbook pro at the time so it's quite a quite a chunky one um and i plug that into my docking station where i've got several screens and i it, once it's got all the screens attached, it feels like it's a different computer, but essentially it's still my laptop. Is that the laptop you take out to events to DJ with, or do you have a different setup when you're in front of a crowd and 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 mixing music live? I would never take this computer to a club. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I take... Uh, I, I'm USB sticks these days, so... Oh. Yeah, I, I I do USB sticks. Um, I I only went over to USB about three years ago. I was one of the last people to use CDs. You're you're afraid of updates, like you said. You don't want to do them. <laughs> I was also one of the last people to kind of still use vinyl. You know, I begrudgingly moved from CD from vinyl to CD. I, I never got into the trackers. So you show up at a at an event when it's not a pandemic with a bag full of 
USB sticks, and they have all the equipment. Well, no, I just have I just have one, or rather, two nice big 128 gigabyte USBs. That it's got pretty much everything. Um, but yeah, wow. life has moved on from that because I um, I did a I did a large festival a couple of years ago called Alpha Music Festival. This is a a very big music festival in Russia, and I've got a good name in Russia due to one track called Ganja Man, which uh, went massive there and became a radio hit. So I'm well known in Russia, and they put me on the main stage along. And so I was the first person on, on the main stage, along with people like Tiesto and Af- oh. Afro oh. Jack and all these characters. <clears throat> and I was the only one. I was the only DJ all night that actually mixed. Every single other person had a pre-recorded set with a lighting show. And I oh. was the only one that had an actual setup of CDJs where I would turn up and did not know what I was going to play. I just kind of DJed the old-fashioned way. <laughs> and then choosing another record or choosing two records to play at once. Yeah. Is that anxiety producing ahead of time? Do you Do you still get nervous and butterflies before you do that when you don't know what your set's going to be and it's all so organic? Um, no, um, once, you know, I'm, I'm okay. Technically I'm, I can get out of trouble, uh, DJ wise. If I mix two things together, then I have a way of getting out of trouble without you knowing if that makes sense. Mm. So, uh, Mm -hmm. these are all techniques that you learn over many, many years. But essentially, no, I don't get nervous about DJing in front of people. But what I do struggle with is I need to have in my mind the first few tracks I'm going to play. And if I've got those nailed, then I'm good. So you need the seed for the show. And it's kind of like that's the starter. Yeah. So I'm the person that I I had my track list. my list, I have lots of different folders on my USB sticks. So, and I have a, a list of mm-hmm. lists, if that makes sense. It's one big mm-hmm. text file with all the tracks. And so half an hour before I'm due to play, wherever I am, I'm the person that you will see on, on, on the phone, just staring at all the list of tracks, deciding what I'm going to play. I saw you play in South Africa when I lived there and grew up there at a club called 206 and this was in the late 90s i think i think i don't don't remember exactly it was a melting pot of a club it was just after um we had our first free and fair elections all kinds of south africans were there i was there every tuesday night to to um dance to jungle it was where i was introduced to jungle and you played there do you Let's talk about let's talk about that. What were your impressions of South Africa? What, why did you go there? How did that come up? Uh, I was invited to play. I was invited to play two oh six in Joburg, and then go to Cape Town. And in between the two, we went to Sun City, had a couple of days off there. I went on safari. It was a, I had an amazing time. I had a brilliant time. Um, what with with me, there was a guy, there were two guys traveling me with me. One was 
uh, White, and the other guy was Mixed Race, and all three of us were essentially from London. And um, the Mixed Race guy, I can't remember his name, he was the only one who'd been to South Africa before because he had family there. But for me, um, I was expecting... I was expecting a, a problematic country when I when I went there, but what I found is I I found everyone was in there together. I, I it was bizarrely for me, it was probably the least racist place I have been to um, at the time. Yeah. I I remember those days, there was so much uncertainty of what was going to happen in the future. And as, you know, someone in their 20s who, who didn't really care about politics and just wanted to get along, it was so nice to be able to go to a place where everybody had the same sort of vision. Did, did you realize you were exposing us to the world? We had been so cut off for so long and having these international event, uh, um I guess performances come to South Africa was like, oh my God, we're being welcomed back into the world. Did you realize you were doing that? Ah, uh, no, no. I mean, for for me, it was like, oh wow, I'm going to go and see the South Africa as it's been closed off to the world, and and the South Africa we had grown up with on the TV was not the South Africa that I found at all. I I, I thought it was an amazing place. Um, lots of trouble though, and very pr pretty violent. I mean. Uh, <laughs> it was an eye-opener to me when we were driving around at midnight and driving through red lights at 50 miles an hour. That was bizarre. <laughs> and that still happens today. I have friends who are there who still have to do that. That that has not changed. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. And and the stories people had. I, I'd never been... In, in, in At the after party, there was a moment I remember where... Well, maybe it was the second time I went back to South Africa, but I do remember there was a, an after party after being at 206. And the, uh, every single person at the table had a gun story or knew someone mm -hmm. who had been shot. And, mm -hmm. you know, from itty bitty London, this was not what I had grown up with at all. <laughs> no. Oh, you're right. It was a very violent place. I also have those stories. Like, I think you could speak to any South African who grew up there at that time, and they'll have a story like that. Can we talk about your most famous song um, and how that came to be? All right. Well, uh, there's lots of songs that it could have been. It could have been Badass. It could have been Ganja Man. Uh, it could have been Dark Side 99, King of the Beats. It could have been Summer Breeze, as as we've talked about. But no, it became Stalker. And this is my most played track on, well, everywhere. And it's because of the scene in Human Traffic, where the guy, um, the record shop scene in Human Traffic, where he, he says, any jungling guy, and he puts it on the tune, and that's my tune, Stalker. And that has become synonymous with... Uh, people's idea of drum and bass and i get to when i play, whenever i play it now people go crazy to it they love it but uh this is a, a, a an exclusive for your podcast this is a re-recording um that only appears currently on uh ministry of sound album that i haven't put out into the world
Yeah, I was checking that out. It's so much clearer than the original. It's it's beautiful, and it, isn't it something to be known for this track? Like this is when people think of drum and bass and jungle. Like if if you see the the movie Human Traffic and you hear that, like that's that's pretty cool. It is. I mean, it's, you know, it's the, it's the dancing, the the crazy dancing scene. <laughs> <laughs> all great. right that's so great you mentioned summer breeze in the before the before we played the track um and we were talking off air that it's still a mystery of who actually does the vocals on that track and summer breeze is, is one of my favorites um i've played it for my kids many millions of times T- tell me about the um why it's a mystery well, I mean, Aladdin was me and a guy called Mark QED, and he he worked on the pirate radios as well. And so you'd hunt samples together and come up with an idea. Um, the, the the vocals, I have no idea who they are, because it's an old white label a cappella album, um, and the vocals came off of one of these albums. These were albums kind of produced by sound engineers that were trying to make a few bucks on the side. And uh, I have hunted on the internet to find out who, who, who whose vocals they are to avail. There, there is no way of knowing whose they are. Um, and there are, girl, there are a guy's vocals, but because I pitched them up slightly, they sound like a girl. about 2021 what what are you looking forward to besides the release of the new track that we talked about and no and and no pandemic uh well i'm looking forward to djing again um but i'm hoping to not have to be to say yes to every gig um because i am back in the studio and, and i enjoy being back in the studio um when you're DJing every weekend in different parts of the world, uh, it makes it extremely difficult to go in the studio and make music because you recover from the weekend by Wednesday um, mm. and then on Thursday you're preparing for the next weekend. So you, you never really have time to, to make music. 
Have you done any virtual shows this year? Yes, um, I've done pretty well in my Facebook streams. Um, mm-hmm. They've been going pretty well, and I've got a good audience for that. I've been doing uh, normal mix shows where I play, go crazy on four decks, and then I've also done a few shows where I'm just playing my old school vinyl. When do those happen? I had no idea they happened. I have to listen to these. Uh, they happen when I feel like it, basically. I uh-huh. just literally just decide, right, I'm going to go and do a show, and I'll come in and do one. Um, that's pretty much how it goes. There's no regular time for it. Uh, but it doesn't matter particularly because if you miss it, it's still listed on my page. So you can still listen to it. You don't have to listen to it live. Do you end up streaming it on more than one platform at the same time, or do you have a particular stream you favor? Um, I have done, um, but I'm a bit suspicious about all the bandwidth that goes on. So when I have done it, my camera has been jumpy. So I prefer Mm. sticking to one platform, and I prefer doing it um, on Facebook. Well, I have to join you on Facebook and keep an eye out for you. Um, I'm so glad you're working on new music and that you're excited to release that. Yeah, no, it's good because it, it, I'm able to go through into, I've got a big old catalogue uh, and some of it can be still made relevant. So I'm getting remixes done and I'm doing updated, updated versions myself. Have you had any trouble with uh, record labels and ownership and... Um, issues around who has the copyright and who hasn't or is the mere fact that you're resampling and remixing like those issues aren't a thing oh yeah um for the for the tracks on my albums i've got deals and publishing deals with the the people i've sampled um you know for the vocals from star from the dark side or king of the beats for example um but not for summer breeze if one if one day Someone says, oh, that's my vocals, and they prove it, then, oh, I'm probably going to be a bit in trouble. Um, Hopefully not. I did get in trouble with a artist called Sheila Chandra, Sheila Chandra, because of some vocal samples that I used on a track of mine called Calcutta. Now, interestingly enough, I only sampled her at the beginning, and then the other two breakdowns, I had sampled some weird, obscure, um, down-tempo tune. Now, unfortunately for me, this down-tempo tune had also sampled Sheila Chandra. So (laughs) the reason why they matched was because they were both the same same artist. Anyway, she came after me and I had to pay her a lot of money and she didn't want the track up. So I think in some countries, Aftershock is not available. So the only way I'm going to get around it is is if I re-record the whole album, uh, not put Calcutta in it, or take her out of it, or contact her and ask her if um, she wants to make a deal with a re-recording. Wow. Yeah, there have been so many issues with samples in the news in the last few years. I, I kind of wonder if it's like what the motivation behind that is. I well, guess. if the record make if the record makes money, then the person sampled wants a cut. Pretty simple as that. 
Pretty simple. <laughs> well, it's it's been really wonderful talking to you and getting to know your history and how um, how things have evolved. We we didn't really get into what happened in the aughts and the and the tens here in in, two, in the new millennium. Um, maybe we could get to that some other time in a subsequent episode. Yeah, no problem. Um, yeah, it, it's been great to be on. Uh, I would suggest as the next track, if you can squeeze another track, definitely play. Let's acid, do it. Acid, definitely play "Acid to the Sound." Um, it's my most popular track played on social media these days. I don't think any other guest has done that. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you so much for spending your time. Thank you for having me on, and hopefully uh, uh, you can make the next part of the story happen with another podcast. That'd be wonderful. Gavin King is DJ Aphrodite, British DJ and producer, one of the founding fathers of Jungle, and you can find him online at afro.co.uk and on Twitter at DJ Aphrodite. On Twitch, on Facebook, he is everywhere. You've been listening to the 107 Podcast. Find us online at 107.com slash podcast. And if you have a second, do send us a message. We love hearing from you. Our email address is podcast at 107.com. Until next time, this is Ivan Stegic. Thanks for listening. Thanks for dancing.
the underworld. <laughs>